your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready. For your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint. Today's guest is Larry Grummer Strawn, and he works for the World Health Organization. His wife, Sarah Grummer Strawn, also shares her positive imprints of survival, recovery, courage. Sarah was in an horrific recreational accident in France when her parachute did not open. Well, the World Health Organization, otherwise known as WHO, began in 1948. WHO workforce reflects the principles of human rights, ethical standards, and equity, which are inspired by the WHO vision of a world in which all peoples attain the highest possible level of health. The World Health Organization's mission is to promote health, keep the world safe, and serve the vulnerable. Well, WHO is establishing 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. What this means is explained by WHO Director General Dr. Tedros. He says, Nurses and midwives are the backbone of every health system. In 2020, we're calling on all countries to invest in nurses and midwives as part of their commitment to health for all. (laughs) Well, if you know a nurse or midwife, thank them for their services in big ways during 2020. Talk to your politicians about whose mission for investing in nursing and midwives. Well, Carmen, our niece, and Erlene, our sister-in-law, a big thank you for your services in the nursing field. You have made people's lives grander and healthier. Thank you. Well, hello, listeners. This is Catherine with your positive imprint. <laughs> I have two exciting guests. So one of them, Larry Grummer, whom actually we went to school together. We've known each other since first grade, mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of years. <laughs> and he's actually been living in Europe, out in Switzerland. But he is here sitting in front of me, which is great because he came out to visit his family here in New Mexico, and he has brought his absolute lovely wife, Sarah, who has awesome stories to tell about survival. (laughs) And we will get to those. Hello. Hello. And welcome back. Always good to be in the Southwest. It is. It is. It's it's quite cold. And beautiful blue skies. Yeah, it's it's great to have you here in front of me, and, and of course, seeing you after so many years. I know we we see each other every now and again when you pop in. Mm -hmm. And before we go on with your positive imprint with the World Health Organization, I just want to mention that the vision I have in my head when I think about you is when we were in second grade. You know exactly where I'm going with this. We were in second grade. Miss Foley, I believe, was Mm -hmm. our teacher, who was a Dark Shadows fan, (laughs) and uh, we were both in the talent show. Yes. And the buildings were across the street from each other. Right, right. You were were dancing, and I was playing the guitar. That's exactly right. (laughs) Oh my gosh, and then you did Down in the Valley, I think. You remember that. I don't. I do remember that it was in my repertoire with probably three songs that I could play at the time. (laughs) I just remember Miss Foley. We couldn't stay for the whole talent show because I didn't let the second graders stay. And Miss Foley made us hold hands. She watched us cross the street. (laughs) Make sure you hold hands. 
coming back. Of course, Larry's like, we have to get back to class. We have to get back to class. I was very studious even in second grade. Yes, yes. And so, but that was that was a fun memory that we we kind of showed. That was all to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so now you have grown up and you are in this. You're part of the World Health Organization. That's right. Which is so incredible. Let's let's first tell the listeners a little bit of background about World Health Organization and why you chose to go that route. So the World Health Organization is part of the United Nations. There are a lot of specialized agencies within the UN to address problems of the world. And obviously, World Health Organization is trying to improve the health of the world. Um, goes back to the 1940s um, of the countries coming together and seeing the various problems around the world. Um, and said, how can we conquer these problems uh, of health um, in a better way by working together on them? Um, and created the organization uh, headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. It is still in the, the original buildings uh, that it was in at the time. I joined them about five years ago. Prior to that, I was with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which is based in Atlanta. They're actually very similar in, in many ways. They're both science-based organizations that are trying to use the best scientific evidence to change the way we deal with health. While some of it is about health care uh, and making sure that people have health care and that health care is high quality, a lot of it is more of a public health approach. So we're trying to make sure that people are healthy by creating a world that is more healthy, policies that make it easier for people to do things that are good for their own health rather than waiting until they get sick and we treat them when they're sick. So like vaccinations maybe? or, or Vaccinations would certainly be a part of it, but that's part of the healthcare system. We, we tend to, to do uh, that as a preventive measure within healthcare. But a lot of what we work on too is just trying to change the nature of the world we live in. So water and uh, water safety. Um, and uh, hygiene, so making sure that populations have access to latrines or flush toilets so that they're not passing diseases around. One of the things that I'm working on this year is on maternity leave, so that women, uh, after they uh, have their babies, are able to have some time to bond with their babies, to take care of their babies. Um, it's good for child development, it's good for their own health, it helps them to breastfeed that we know is good for the health of their children. And so it's, it's something completely outside of the health arena, it's much more an economic strategy for maternity leave, but we know it has huge health implications. So how do we actually build those kinds of policies? So how do you do that when you build a policy? How does this affect directly the people around the world. Do you have any staff that goes down and watches these policies being implemented? How does it work? Because like anything else, we can read about a policy, but how do you know it's actually working, it's being implemented? So we do a lot of different kinds of studies. Some studies are about the efficacy. So you, you do, an, do a, a study somewhere of, okay, we put in place a policy, what happens to the, the, the behaviors of people? Do they actually breastfeed for longer? Do they actually take care of their children better? And, and study what happens in, in the real world. We also will look just kind of on a monitoring basis, um, not just to look at the outcomes, but say, 
they put in place a policy, but are we actually seeing that people use that policy? That's one thing to write the law, but then if no one actually enforces that law um, and no one pays any attention to it, so you put in measures over time to see, well, are women actually taking that leave? Are, people, are they staying at home okay. with their babies longer? So we have surveillance systems, but we also do in, in more in-depth research studies uh, to find out what the impacts are. That's exciting because I'm always about research, and I love research and reading different papers and knowing that policies are being, you know, rendered in ways that are based upon research. You are doing this in Switzerland. That's the headquarters for the WHO um, and a number of United Nations agencies. In fact, people think of the United Nations headquarters being in New York, and they consider that to be the political headquarters, whereas Geneva, Switzerland is really the operational headquarters. So we have a lot of staff there that are involved in carrying out the work of the United Nations, and the WHO is one of those agencies there. Um, it was created there, um, you know, Switzerland was, was known as a, a neutral country, uh, right, not taking right. sides in World War II. The United Nations was created just after World War II, and so it was kind of a natural location in that sense. And the Swiss government kind of volunteered, we will, we will host you, yeah, we'll yeah. provide you a lot of the land to take care of that, to put in place you know, tax systems to take care of the, the people who'd be working with the United Nations to make it a, a good home for that. And so it's continued to, to be the home. And you travel extensively, actually, around the world, not just in Europe. So what does this entail when you do travel? You know, how are you carrying this positive imprint with you? <laughs> Yeah, so pretty much all of the work is for, right, all of the travel is for, for work. Um, sometimes I can add on a couple of days to have some fun too, but uh, <laughs> it, it is to, to travel to countries really to help them figure out how do they put in place these policies, how do so they build the programs. So you meet with government? So or... I'm usually working with the government. Sometimes we'll have meetings with other organizations in that same country along with the government. So there might be non-governmental organizations that implement or that advise them, that do some of that research. And so we'll do it jointly, but really our main contact uh, is with the government. And so it's advising them. What are the recommendations that we're putting out uh, from WHO? Why are those recommendations um, what, what, we th what we think they should be doing? And is to work with them. How do you actually make that work in their country? You, know, you can't just have, this is the global policy. Everybody should do it exactly the same way. So how do you adapt it in the circumstances that they're in? And how do you really get there? Sometimes it's not just, oh, we want to have this policy, but there are barriers in the way. There might be corporations that don't want that to be the policy because it might influence, interfere with their corporate gains. There might be other groups that are fighting against it for other reasons. And so you have to figure out, well, how do we work toward a solution here that's going to be in the best interest of the population? Sometimes you can find things that are in the mutual interest of everyone, Sometimes you have to say, well, no, this isn't always going to be best for corporations, um, but it's better for the health of people, and how do we work through that? This is interesting. I'm, I'm enjoying this, and I know the listeners have questions, and I'm trying to read their minds. One of them is, do you only provide your visits or your communications, your connections, with countries that are part of the United Nations? Actually, just about the entire world is a member of the United Nations. The only um, states that really are not are states that are 
in a little bit of flux in some right. way. They might be a territory of another country, and there might be some disputes about are they actually their own country or are they um, still under the, the auspices of another? And so they may not get United Nations status because it's still being fought about. But those are more the exceptions, and they tend, tend to be small countries. So really most countries are in the United Nations. They, they just have a different participation level. It's, yeah, it's a then, different participation level, and sometimes it does get complicated right. for us to work in those because we we might have to have the permission of another entity that says they're in charge of that uh, land. And so there are situations we have to sometimes be very careful. Sometimes we can invite them to come to our meetings um, and learn about what they need to be doing, but we can't recognize them as a full-fledged member there. <laughs> We might go into and have a meeting and say, all right, we have 20 entities in the room, 18 countries in the room. We can't call the other two countries because they're, you know, not, they don't have a, a legal status that's recognized by everyone in the room. Okay. And but so really, we don't limit our, our help. You don't limit your help. What about the funding? Is that up to every government to do the funding on its own? So as, as is standard for the United Nations, um, the World Health Organization gets an allotment from all countries. So all members are expected to chip in mm-hmm. when there's an algorithm on what right. the appropriate amount should be for them to, to make their member state contributions. For some very poor countries, it's very, very small. But for large, uh, rich countries, um, they, they have a much larger contribution to put in. And that does provide a base of funding for WHO and other entities. But in addition to that, we raise funds uh, on the basis of the projects that we're working on, some from countries themselves, not necessarily as a, an assessed, they call those assessed contributions when it's just part of their kind of tax uh, to the system. But we'll also go to countries and say, we want to work on this project. Um, would, would you support our work on this particular activity? So we'll also get country support uh, um, specific to the projects that we're working on. In addition, we'll go out to foundations and do uh, funding uh, funding requests. Um, actually, a, a large part of WHO's budget is now um, paid for by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That, that's amazing. Now, have you always been on the maternity leave um, project <laughs> when you've been with who? So that's only one part. So uh, at the CDC, I was doing nutrition across the board. So I was the chief of the nutrition branch at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, and so dealt with a lot of different nutrition um, issues. So it might be breastfeeding one day, it might be trans fatty acids, it might be consumption of fruits and vegetables, yeah. <laughs> it might be iodine deficiency. So we were just kind of all over uh, either U.S. problems or sometimes international problems just all kinds of nutrition issues. When I went to WHO, I kind of focused in on the the topics in nutrition. And so I'm only doing infant and young child feeding there. I have a a broader geographic scope that I'm dealing with the entire world, but it's only only on that young uh, feeding really in the first few years, in addition to some general stuff that I do. But my, my main focus is on infant and young child feeding. So a lot about breastfeeding and how we can support breastfeeding, and that's where the maternity leave work right. fits in, is to support women so that they can continue breastfeeding after their babies are born. But lots of other things that we'll do with that, medical education, trying to change systems in, in hospitals that get in the way of the beginning of breastfeeding, counseling around breastfeeding. What do you mean hospitals that get in the way? So there are a lot of procedures that they'll do when babies are born that actually make it hard to breastfeed. Um, so having nurseries uh, where we keep the baby off in a nursery 
and so mom isn't there to see when the baby got hungry so she doesn't breastfeed and her milk supply doesn't come in because okay. she's not getting that hormonal reinforcement the baby's not suckling at the breast often enough when the baby's off in the nursery, there might be a standing order for uh, feeding the baby with infant formula. And so the baby gets fed with infant formula, and the baby isn't hungry when the baby does come to mom, and so doesn't suckle at the breast very vigorously. So her milk never comes in, and a couple of weeks later they say, oh, I couldn't breastfeed because my milk supply dried up. Right. And but it's because of those procedures that the hospital had put in place um, that, that made it hard for her. So we're trying to get hospitals to change the way they do their procedures. Oh, that is so interesting. Yes. Do you think, uh, and this is like looking into crystal ball, (laughs) (laughs) if we didn't have who, do you think that we would be as far ahead as we are now with regard to health and with regard to education? How do you think who has provided or allowed our world to sustain ourselves in a healthy manner. I think that the World Health Organization has made huge impact on the health of the world. And you really just have to point to examples, but um, take polio, for example. The World Health Organization was the leader in mobilizing the world to eradicate polio. It's a a disease that doesn't exist. That's a great example because we forget, I forget about that time period because we weren't living. Right. You know, and so we we don't think about it. And it it wouldn't happen if you didn't have that coordination across lots of countries. You could say, oh, well, you know, a country could have gone and done the vaccinations themselves. Well, first of all, many countries didn't have the resources to do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And diseases like that cross borders. So you can't say, oh, because these countries took care of it themselves, we've taken care of the problem. Well, the fact that other countries didn't take care of it means it's going to come back into that country again and again and again. So you had to have a coordinated effort to to stamp that out. So there's good leadership and good communication because, you know, this was in the 1950s. We're talking with the polio and the research that was done on it. So you had to have some way and some means of communicating with the countries. And we didn't have internet back then. (laughs) So Sure, but it wasn't just communication. I mean, I think we we got to where people knew what the solution was a, a lot earlier than that. But if you don't have an international body who can make decisions, we're going to solve this problem and here's how we're going to do it, provide the resources to the places that couldn't do it on their own and make it happen, it won't happen. Just because people know it's the right thing doesn't mean that it will automatically happen. So taking it back to my example of breastfeeding, pretty much everybody knows that breastfeeding is the healthiest thing for their babies. Mm It's not a matter of telling them what is the best thing to do. It's a matter of how do you actually change the systems that are getting in their way. Right. So that early return to work, the practices that are wrong in the hospitals, you have to change those things. One of the big things that, that we're working on is the corporate influence of infant formula. So companies, multinational corporations are out there making money selling infant formula. And we need those companies. So we're not negative on those companies, they're bad companies, because there are women who can't breastfeed, and we want them to have the healthiest product possible. And infant formula is clearly better than taking milk off the shelves and doing your own special concoctions with it to feed the babies. (laughs) Infant formula is definitely healthier, but it's not as healthy as breastfeeding. 
And so when those companies come in and start pushing their products and advertising them and convince women that, well, maybe this would be just as good as my breast milk, or ah, it'll be a lot easier for me to do that instead of breastfeed, it shifts decisions away from what's best for health. And so if we don't have controls on how marketing can be done, then that will just continue to push away from breastfeeding. And so what we work on at WHO is to put those controls in place and then help countries put in place laws so that they're controlling that marketing in a way that doesn't interfere with breastfeeding. Do you do lobbying? So in a way, yes. You know, Because we're global, we can't get into the, the minutia right, of right. every country and, and how that lobbying is being done. But we certainly advise national governments and national organizations to say, well, if you're going to get to a better policy, you need to be talking to your congressmen. You need to be talking to your parliamentarians. And so we give them the tools, basically, for, for that lobbying. We do advocacy, if you want to call that lobbying, but it's not on a specific bill. You know, the technical definition of lobbying is this bill, are you going to help this one pass forward? We're not at that level of minutia, but we certainly are doing advocacy. Advocacy definitely is education. It's sometimes education on different issues than people think it's going to be. You know, sometimes people think of education as, well, we just need to tell people about breastfeeding. It's a lot more that right, they need to be taught right. than that and what the, what the barriers are and how do you actually address well, those the barriers. research needs to be But all of that is in, part of the advocacy. Which I think Certainly. helps to make choices is when that research is, when you're looking at, you know, why sure. is, is breastfeeding so much better for the immune system and so on and so forth because that research has been done. That's exactly right. And that is an important message that we always want to share about the importance of breastfeeding. But we also want to do it in a way that doesn't put the responsibility on individual women, individual families, that somehow you're making the wrong decision for your health or for your baby's health. That's not the issue. We, want, we know that most families are making the right decision for them under the circumstances that they're faced with. If mom needs to go back to work early, if she's been given these messages, then she's going to be making the decisions that she thinks are right. And right. we don't want to say that you're making the wrong decision. What we want to do is we want to change the systems that are making it hard for her to make the healthiest choice. So we want to give her the maternity leave that makes it easy. We want to give her educated healthcare professionals that know how to support her. We want to give her access to counseling so that she can figure out issues of, well, how am I going to go back to work and breastfeed at the same time? I've never had to do this for, before. I'm a first-time yeah. mom. So give her the resources so that that healthy choice is actually the easiest choice for her. Where would a mother go for these resources that you're talking about? She should be able to go to her healthcare providers in her community. She should be able to go to community organizations in the, the village that she lives in or the city that she lives in. In some places they do exist, in some places they don't. Um, here in the United States, you've got access to lactation consultants. In the uh, low-income WIC program in the United States, there are peer counselors available to women who are women who have breastfed themselves and are there to help other women, and they're hired in, into that and trained how to, to help other women. Um, so there are resources available to them. Not enough. It needs to, to be grown uh, much more in this country, but in the rest of the world as well. We need to build more of those mother-to-mother -mother support groups, outpatient clinics for help, 
um, ways to get that community support uh, for women. Of course, everything sounds easy, like, oh, we can just get policy enacted and get things changed. But then, of course, it's much harder than what people really realize. And so your job is, to, is, is just totally amazing. And so can you just give kind of talk a little bit about, if, if you can, I don't know if you are able, but choose one of the countries that you've been to where you've sat down with the government and just kind of walk us through a, a typical conversation that, that you have. I don't know how to walk through a, a single conversation. <laughs> Usually these things uh, spread out over you know, years, really. <laughs> I, I guess one example I'll take is with Oman in the Middle East, and we were very interested in how to, how to control the marketing of breast milk substitutes there. And they actually already have a law there that, that says... These are the parameters that you, you, you can't, here's how you can market your products, here's how you can't, to try to make sure that they're not convincing women who could easily be breastfeeding that, oh, I don't really want to breastfeed, I'm going to use infant formula. And the laws have been there for a number of years, but they don't actually enforce them. They don't have systems in place for even catching when someone has violated the law. And so, you know, you'll still see, you know, billboards up advertising uh, infant formula when it's not allowed. And you'll see them giving gifts to healthcare providers, uh, which is not allowed under their law. So we were working with them on, well, how can you actually build systems to catch these things in a fast enough way that you can say that's against the law and we're going to penalize you for it so that you stop the behavior? What you would find before was, well, people would say, oh, this happened, and okay, we found out that it happened, but by the time it actually makes it to the people in the government who could do something about it, well, it was a year earlier, and can we prove that that actually happened? How do we really know? And no one would really do anything about it. And we came up with the solution that they actually have in their healthcare system an adverse events reporting. Normally it's been for when something goes wrong in a hospital, it's an adverse event that you know someone died that you know, because a procedure was accidentally done wrong. And they said, but we have the electronic system here that we can easily just put in the form for people who are ad ad recognizing something is being done that's not supposed to be done. And that, that information is automatically stored in the computer and can be diverted to the appropriate office so we can divert that information to the office who is in charge of enforcing this law. And so they just had to change some of the forms and educate people within the healthcare system, here's how to fill out this form when you see these kinds of things happening. And so it's up and running. So it was a relatively easy thing, but no one had thought of how do we put these pieces together. And so it was a matter of sitting down with the people who cared in the Department of Nutrition with the people who had the system in the electronics management <laughs> system and the people in the enforcement office and get them all to talk about how do we actually link all of this together. So it's up and running. It's and up they're, and running. They're catching That's violations. <laughs> Nothing is ever perfect. There's still you know issues that they're, they're sorting through. Um, but it really has been a success story that we're using uh, in, in a number of places, particularly across the oh, Middle East. Oh, good for you. As an example of how you can build a system yeah. to catch this. And, and through discussion. And... The world, or those that participate, you talk about that who has these policies, these world policies, such as 
the marketing and so on, do all countries have to adhere to these? Is that something that is part of being a part of the United Nations? So according to the constitution of the, of the World Health Organization, there are multiple tiers of how decisions can be made. So you can have conventions that are essentially treaties uh, that, that governments sign on to. They still have to take international action. We have um, sovereign states. Um, but it basically is an agreement. This is a convention that we're all saying we need to do this, so we need to sign on to this treaty. There is a framework tra framework convention on tobacco control. So all countries as part of the United Nations have said we have to control tobacco, um, and here's how we're going to do it. There are regulations, international health regulations, that are also part of the Constitution that manage how, how diseases are managed across borders. They don't have the same level of okay. a treaty, right. but they're a, they are a regulation, so there's an expectation that you essentially have to abide by this. We can't enforce that, but there's an understanding. And then there are recommendations. And this code of marketing of breast milk substitutes is in the recommendation tier. So basically all member states have signed on and said, this is what we recommend everyone should do, but it doesn't mean that they all have done it themselves. Okay. Um, so it, it doesn't have that, that higher level of regulatory uh, power that, it, that we would like it to have. Um, it was a conscious decision at the time to kind of make it a little bit softer, actually because of the um, pressure from the United States. Uh, it was under the Reagan administration at the time who argued for let's have this a little bit weaker so that we can give more room to, to industry. In the, the idea being that if, if it was weakened, then the United States would support it. And then in the end, when it came down to a vote, the United States voted against it. So it actually um, didn't, didn't get the, the, the power that it would have liked. And some people have said, <laughs> in hindsight, maybe we should have tried to, to make uh -huh. it into a regulation. Uh, but it was, was put forward as a recommendation. We're currently at the point that 135 countries have put in place at least some of the provisions of that code of marketing. But we, um, at last count, have said there were only about, I think it was 37 countries that have fully implemented, probably 39 countries, have fully implemented the code in its entirety into their laws. Your job is obviously positive imprint. And is it going to remain in the area of breastfeeding or is that you're assigned it and you're there for how many years? I don't know really where all this is going to go. Um, we're currently at the World Health Organization in a transformation process. Um, that's is that kind a of, good thing? We'll see over time. Obviously, you transform for the purpose of it being a good thing. And I think that the vision of where, it, uh, where, where we would like it to go is definitely a good thing. Um, we have a new uh, director general uh, in charge of the World Health Organization, and he's pushing us uh, in, in positive directions, I think has a strong vision for the future. Some of the implementation uh, hasn't gone as quickly as it should and has had a lot of pitfalls along the way. Um, so will it actually end up being as impactful as we'd like it to be? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but we're in the midst of that, and part of that may change some of my job descriptions. I'm sure I would still stay in the area of nutrition, um, but will my job become a broader uh, set of nutrition? Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see how that mm. shakes out. Yeah, no, it, that, that fulfills pretty much my, my, my time. I do sing at the church, and I sing in the UN choir. You still sing, and of course you sang in that talent show in second grade with your guitar. And so now you're singing. Where are you singing? Um, so I sing with the United Nations Choir. Oh, 
Oh my um, gosh. It, uh, we, we practice once a week in the same building that I'm in, which makes it very convenient that I don't have to go to, to another building. So being the um, United Nations Choir, do you have a bunch of people from all different countries? So the people are from all over the world. Oh, that's Definitely, so cool. That's so um, awesome. You know, Did you have to learn different totally. languages? So the singing that we do is in all different languages. Oh, that's that is awesome. Um, many that I would not even be able to pronounce had they not just provided the pronunciation <laughs> of the words as we sing through them. Um, but yes, languages from Africa, Asia, Europe, um, just, so you just can all carry a tune over. In a different language, uh, and we, we we will sing everything. It we we tend to focus on songs that are just loved by that country. Oh, you know, things that become the the folk lore yeah. of the country that people know that. So, will they teach you what it means? Obviously, since yes, yes, you get the meaning to go along. So you with get it. to learn about the culture, and it's, it's really fun when we give a concert that there are often people in the audience that you know kind of be humming along and try to sing with you a little bit. You know, they don't want to interfere with the music, but it's like this is my song. I love this. It brain reminds me of home, uh, and, and so we make that connection. Oh, that's great. awesome. I love yeah. that. And. Do you travel with the group, or do you stay in in Europe, Switzerland? Really, we just stay in Geneva and, and then and people do concerts. Will go to your concerts. But sometimes they're concerts for the community, uh-huh. and sometimes they are for United Nations events. So you know, you'll you'll be celebrating some anniversary of some uh, you know human rights convention or uh, some other program uh, that's bringing everyone together, and you have heads of state that are coming and they want to uh, do a do a show for them. I think that um, is so, so we'll, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll put that put those on, and we'll sometimes do them <laughs> just for for the community. Oh, I think that it, that is that's dynamic. Wow, it's it's, it's fun learn, learning those languages and the, well, the, the different styles the of music culture. around the world. It's fun. Now that's a that's another fun positive imprint about you, Larry. <laughs> I think that's cool. Well, Geneva is a very multicultural, multinational uh, place. Uh, just as as you're walking down the streets, you will hear tons of different languages. Um, we're very active in our church there. It's an English-speaking Catholic church in Geneva. In our congregation, we have 109 different nationalities. Oh, that's so you're that's you're rubbing fun. up against people from all around the world uh, on a regular basis. Even some ambassadors Everywhere. in the community. Yeah, how fun! Well, Sarah's been sitting over here so quiet and listening to her husband. <laughs> she probably hears these stories all the time, but Sarah. I have got to hear more about this story because it was this horrific accident. Three years ago, was it? Two, two years ago. It's, okay, summer. two years ago. Two years ago. And you're going to have to talk about it. But this was a life or death type of accident. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> it was actually a life or death activity. <laughs> So let let's hear about this and and wow, what you put Larry through. <laughs> well, we always say he actually put me through that because it was uh, two years ago in September, and um, so he given me as a Christmas gift a, a day at the a spa, and then we had lunch and we were ending with a tandem paragliding off of Mont Blanc, the Mont Blanc Range in Chamonix, France, and um, the day went really well. We. And I so you had a got good massage. Little, yeah, I had a great massage. <laughs> had a lovely lunch, staring at the Alps, and then we went. And I was taking off with my pilot first. And did you have paragliding little, on your wish list? It was on my bucket list. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we started. Uh, you have to uh, run a little to to get off the mountain. 
several small things went wrong. I slipped, he, something went wrong with the parachute. Uh, of course, I wasn't totally aware of everything at that moment, and I knew we were getting off to a rocky start, but we actually went out off the mountain for a few seconds, probably, I don't know, and then we slammed into the side of the mountain first and then fell. And it was, the, it, in slamming into the mountain, I only um, got cuts on my head, but the fall broke all of my lumbar vertebrae and tore the ligaments that hold your spine to your pelvis. I think oh so. But I did, I did not know that at the time. I, they had the... Um, Were you unconscious? Or? Nope, never lost consciousness. It, I felt fine. Uh, we were worried about my pilot because he had been knocked unconscious during that few minutes. So second. you had started the run, yeah. but then something happened with the parachute. But of course, well, you wouldn't... I, I slipped, which is apparently pretty common, but then there were other little things. Yeah. And our, my they pilot. Went, they went a little bit off course, and so the parachute actually got caught on the windsock. And oh. The windsock that stands up there to tell them which direction the winds are going and got caught on that and spun them around. Which, and then slammed and you. Hit, so he hit his head in the process. She was fine at that point, but because he hit his head, he blacked out and couldn't steer the, the paraglider anymore, and so they just drifted off into oh, the mountain that, without him steering. Oh, yeah. So I didn't even think about the steering. Yeah. <laughs> so he could, okay, and because he blacked out, wow. Yeah. They, the rescue team came, we were both helicoptered out of there, went to the French hospital nearby. They're stitching up my head in the hospital and I hear them talking about, oh, a broken back and I'm thinking it's the pilot and thinking, oh, I hear that's really painful. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't until a little while later when they come in and they say, yeah, that they, I had supposedly just chipped my vertebrae oh and my gosh. they said it was gonna be painful, but getting up and doing physiotherapy, I'd be fine after a few months. And they tried to get me to stand up, and I have never experienced pain like that, and I have a pretty high tolerance. She and has two I, children. Yes, I have two children, born naturally, nine pounds each. <laughs> so that's, but he, I could tell from the look on his face at, at, when he was looking at me, and I do get a little emotional about this, that something was more wrong, and he, uh, I'm going to get emotional. So he um, told him that they were gonna, they needed to take me to Geneva, and um, so several days later I went to Geneva. They did another set of X-rays and discovered that all of this, the lumbar vertebrae were broken. So I had a surgery um, a week after the accident. How did they repair? I have two titanium rods and eight titanium screws in my back <laughs> that hold it all together. Oh my! Um, had a great surgeon, had um, great care at the hospital, and uh, Larry was there, and one of our nephews, and my daughter came to help take care, and I belonged to the American International Women's Club, which is only 20% Americans, mostly <laughs> women from all over, um, and they made meals, came and visited me, and, you know, and prayers from our church in Geneva. Including me, we were praying yeah, down here. Um, my daughter-in-law teaches at a Catholic school, and her class was praying for me, and one of Larry's co-workers has a church down in South Africa, and they were praying for me. So between good medicine and my family advocating for me and all the prayers, I 
I can walk. So did you ever feel, did they ever tell you you wouldn't be able to walk? No, the the closest thing that got to it was the, um, when the surgeon was saying I needed to have the surgery, he, he was saying, well, if you don't do, (laughs) if you don't have the surgery, this could happen. And that, and, you know, we, we kind of knew that it was, you have the surgery because otherwise you're, you'll be paralyzed from the waist down. I just be laying in bed for the rest of my life. So So could you feel your legs? I could. Yeah. I, I, every, every time I moved, it, it was searing pain things. And then I did get an infection in my back from the first surgery. So I had to have a second surgery. I I had two things that I wanted to be able to do. My son and daughter-in-law had announced in June of that year that they were expecting in March. So I knew that I needed to be able to walk around and go up and down stairs holding a small child because my daughter-in-law had actually asked me to come back and help her after she had to return to work because she didn't have a long maternity leave. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to Larry. We're working on it. Yeah, yes. (laughs) And I also, with with the um, women's club, I had started hiking. And if you told me five years ago that I'd be hiking uh, on a regular basis, twice a week, usually two and a half hours at a time, I would have thought you were absolutely crazy, but I have become addicted to hiking. <laughs> and so I had to get back to my hiking group and I had to be able to hold my grandson. And both of those things happened. And you are walking great. And yeah. you're here with such a smile and, <laughs> and so happy as you're looking across the table to yeah. Larry. And <laughs> you two have been taking good care of each yes. other through all these years. Yeah. yeah. So well, what, what a positive imprint that you were able to take that injury and and you talk about it to other people and you share your inspiration of well the medicine and the inspiration of prayer and you've just been awesome about it and your humor has never left you (laughs) i mean the facebook post that you were putting up was oh is she really that injured (laughs) yeah well he didn't he didn't post the picture of me smiling with my bloodied face luckily to facebook that's not allowed (laughs) 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 but i did post some that she didn't appreciate yeah 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 Yeah. well how's the pilot he's actually done quite well he had a a major gash in his leg but that turned out to be the worst of it and he's back to being a pilot and because he's been doing it for 27 years now and i'm the only person that he's ever had an accident. <laughs> he actually walked out of the emergency room and came to visit her before she yes, was Yes, he visited me several room. times while I was in the hospital, which was very That's nice. Great. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. Hopefully you'll keep in touch because he's a, a positive imprint for you, just being there with positive karma and so on. So, Well, this has been enjoyable. And Likewise. Larry, congratulations on all of that work that you've been doing with CDC and now World Health Organization absolute wonderful changes that you're making globally well thank you we're trying to change the world well you I don't are. know if we're doing it but we're trying to no, change the world you are you are changing the world and and it, it it's phenomenal to be able to hear your story you know in closing can you just provide you know your your final words with regards to the world health organization and the absolute positive imprints that it has been providing through all of these decades 
So WHO has really made it its its mandate and its reason for existence to improve the health of people around the world. And I think the successes that we've seen are just tremendous. Um, if you look at the, the improvements that we've had in child mortality, they're astronomical. I, I don't remember exactly the numbers, but I'd say probably over the last 20 years, we've cut child mortality down by half. We used to talk about third world countries as these you know, terrible places that things are so horrible to live. When you go visit them, no, they're not the, the, the highest, wealthiest places, but people are doing well. We've brought down infectious disease tremendously in so many places. Diseases that used to just be rampant throughout the world are often limited to only a few countries and only to certain areas of countries. So much of the world is a healthier place to live in. There are still new, new challenges for us to face. It's not like we've solved it all, but we are in such a better place than we were 70 years ago when WHO was started. And it's because of that coordination, bringing countries together, prioritizing that we need to take care of our people and we know how to do it. We're applying the science, we're applying the policies, we're putting in place the programs. We're really making a huge difference. Larry, thank you so much. And I congratulate you again on everything that you're doing. And I look forward to hearing more of your successes in World Health Organization and their inspiration. Thank you again. Well, thank you for the chance to talk. Enjoyed talking with you. Sarah, thank you so much for thank joining you. your positive imprint. Learn more about World Health Organization from their website at who.int. And don't forget, it's 2020, the year of the nurse and midwife. Music by Chris Knoll. He has new music available on Spotify and other music apps. Check his music out at chrisknoll.com. Listen to this podcast from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, or Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Podbean, or your favorite podcast platform. Sign up for email updates regarding this podcast. Please leave positive reviews and hit those five stars. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Twitter, What's Your PI? Connect with me on LinkedIn and also download my episodes. Subscribe or follow my podcast now. Thanks for listening. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI?